From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, eating from the tree of knowledge. It's no sin. If I can avoid further damage to the zonular apparatus, I'm going to be so much better off in the long run. This is going to be a happy patient instead of a disappointed patient. That's priceless. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month. But the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. I love learning. So do you, and you're listening to this podcast as evidence of that. I love listening to great lectures, and I love symposia that deal with contentious topics in which real dialogue takes place among panel members and between the panel and the audience. At the end of these sessions, you feel a kind of synthesis emerging, knowledge, in a sense, being created. If you've been to the symposium on complications and challenging cases in cataract surgery at the ASCRS annual meeting, then you know what I mean. If there was ever a single session that year after year changes the way that I practice, this is it. Today's podcast is devoted entirely to this knowledge smithery and To that extent, I'm happy to welcome my guest today. He's Mark Packer, the chairperson of the ASCRS Cataract Clinical Committee. Mark Packer, welcome to A Scene From Here. One of the topics discussed in the Challenging Cases in Cataract Surgery Symposium at the ASCRS annual meeting at the last meeting was how to manage pseudophagic dysphotopsia. Can I get you to talk about that case a little bit? Yeah, the case came up, uh, it was, you know, the way that the session works, first of all, is that everyone is invited to submit a, a, a difficult or challenging case video, essentially, of a difficult case and a brief um, PowerPoint describing the history and, and uh, maybe some of the findings. And then our committee uh, goes through all of these um, videos. There's usually, you know, somewhere around 30 to 40 uh, that are submitted from around the world, actually quite a few more from outside the U.S. than from inside the U.S. And uh, this was a case, uh, you know, that Ken Rosenthal uh, submitted uh, about a patient with a multifocal lens who uh, essentially was unhappy because of visual side effects, which we generally consider into this, you know, this under the rubric of uh, pseudophagic dysphotopsia. And, you know, as someone personally who's done a lot of multifocal implants, you know, since 1997, uh, and currently I do a lot, I've heard, you know, many, many different ways that people describe these. And what's important is that a lot of surgeons have resisted uh, the opportunity to use multifocal lenses uh, because of fear of dissatisfied patients. I mean, that's really how I think about it. And, and one of the things that comes out of sessions like this by looking at you know, the audience response questions, which I think are just invaluable, 
is uh, to see you know people's reaction to the situation and how they would manage it, uh, and and try to give uh, the audience members some tools for uh, dealing with these situations so that they don't have to run from them and can actually get involved with using new technology. Uh, why would you want to get involved with using new technology? Well, I think it has tremendous benefits. Um, you know, if you look at the uh, FDA website and, and search for, for example, Technus Multifocal or the Restore uh, Multifocal, you'll find that something about 95% of uh, subjects in those studies would choose the same lens again, given the opportunity. So we generally consider that to be the satisfaction rate. That's how many people are happy with these lenses. Uh, and so that's huge. I mean, if you can satisfy 19 out of 20 uh, you know, people uh, and, and give them the opportunity to go around without glasses, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's equivalent to the satisfaction rate uh, you know, that was found in this study that Kerry Solomon uh, spearheaded of LASIK results. So they looked around the world at, and did a meta-analysis of all the published results of LASIK you know, from every every peer-reviewed journal uh, and found you know, roughly about 95% satisfaction. So, so it's, it's a, it can be as successful as LASIK. So, uh, you know, but the thing is that you've got to uh, understand the optical side effects because they're real, and then you've got to have ways for dealing with them. Uh, and so one of the things, one of the questions that, that we asked uh, had to do with the fact that uh, you know, the fallback option for these people, if they're really, really unhappy with their intraocular lens, uh, the, the, the end game is always going to be uh, an IOL exchange. Uh, you know, if you just cannot make them happy, you, you, you know, you make them wait three months, you talk to them frequently, you do some hand-holding, you just listen. I listen a lot. Just listen to what they have to say and reassure them that I've heard that before and it usually goes away, which it does. Uh, but despite your best efforts, ultimately some people you know, may decide that really for them what they want is to have the lens removed. And uh, in that case, you need to be ready to do that. Now, you know, I've put in hundreds and hundreds of these lenses, and I've only ever had to remove five. So I think I'm doing pretty well. I know other people have had to remove more. But one of the key issues has to do with the YAG capsulotomy. Uh, and the reason is that a surgeon would much rather perform a YAG capsulotomy than an IOL exchange, but once the YAG capsulotomy has been performed, it becomes much more difficult to do the IOL exchange. So as a general rule, uh, I would never perform a YAG until I am sure that I'm not going to perform an exchange because the exchange is much more difficult with an open capsule. Uh, you know, you can have vitreous prolapse and higher risk for retinal detachment and other bad things like cystoid macular edema. So we asked the audience uh, a question um, because it was relevant to the case that, that Ken Rosenthal presented. If you have a patient with unwanted optical effects, from a multifocal lens, and they've already had a YAG capsulotomy, what would you do? And uh, interestingly, 42% uh, would go ahead and do the exchange. Uh, you know, it's a technically demanding procedure and probably requires a lot of viscoelastic to push the vitreous back and safely get the lens out. Uh, there are other issues such as how big an incision do you make and whether or not you cut the lens and how you get it out safely. Uh, but it's interesting that 42% that would, would take that risk. 37%, just slightly fewer, 
uh, would recommend doing nothing. So just having to you know put up with the with the halos or glare or whatever was going on. Um, I think this is a situation we don't really want to be in. Uh, and so learning to differentiate the dysphotopsia is key. And really, the, the kinds of things that people say when they're complaining about a multifocal lens can be very close to the kinds of things people say when they're talking about posterior capsular opacification. A little bit of haziness, a little bit of ghosting, some glare around lights, halos, all these things can happen in either situation. And one of the key uh, differentiating factors that emerged from this session was the time course of the complaints. Generally speaking, you start out with a clear capsule, and so initially, any complaints that the person has right after surgery are due to the IOL. After time, as the capsule may become hazy and complaints develop, those types of issues are more related to the capsule. So by evaluating and really having an honest discussion with the, with the patient about when this particular symptom appeared, uh, it becomes possible to differentiate often uh, whether it's the capsule or the lens. And as I say, I try to defer the capsulotomy until I'm absolutely convinced that it's not the lens. Mark, for me, the session's great because I always come home with things that I can use, but occasionally there are topics that are discussed that are fun to learn about and, and, to, and to watch people talk about, even though they're things that I know that I have no intention of doing in my own practice. And the thing that comes to, to mind is dealing with cataract complications by going through the PARS plane. Now, this is something that was discussed at the last annual meeting in the Challenging Cases section. That's right. We also um, dealt with it in, a, in another symposium, which was a first this year, uh, which was a joint uh, symposium between the uh, Cataract Clinical Committee and the Retina um, Committee. And uh, this was one of the issues that came up. And, you know, it sometimes uh, has to do with a little bit of territoriality. I think you know, the pars plana, uh, you know, belongs to retina surgeons. And so uh, there's a potential there that people will get upset if you're kind of stepping on their toes going through the pars plana. That should really be my case and all that. Uh, fortunately, uh, the level of discourse, you know, at the ASCRS meeting really uh, obviates that kind of thinking. Uh, we're really trying to figure out what's best for the patient. And it turns out that, that really uh, anyone can learn to do a pars plana vitrectomy, especially a very limited uh, anterior pars plana vitrectomy in which you're really not going into the posterior vitreous. What you're really trying to do is remove some fragments of, of cataract material which have descended through a broken capsule or attempting to uh, lift some pieces of into the anterior chamber so that you can then uh, remove them uh, with aspiration or, or even with phaco if you can clear the vitreous. But there are techniques to this. It's not uh, intuitively obvious uh, how to do a pars plana vitrectomy. It's something that has to be learned. Uh, probably requires a little more training than you can get in, say, a one- or two-hour skills transfer session. Uh, and so I think that is the most important take-home lesson for me in this is that it's not a matter of is it right or is it wrong for an anterior segment surgeon to use the pars plana. It's a question of does the surgeon know how to do it effectively. You know, for example, one of the little pearls that I learned uh, during the session 
was that you know if you're doing a pars plantar vitrectomy, as you are done, you let's say you've 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 made your stab incision four millimeters posterior to the limbus, you've gone through the pars plantar, you've got your irrigation, uh, you know you use a split uh, infusion, so you've got your irrigation going through a, a paracentesis or through your clear corneal incision anteriorly. You use maybe a 25 gauge cutter, and you've you've been able to uh, you know do a sutureless uh, style uh, post pars plantar vitrectomy and, and remove the lens fragments. All well and good. Uh, now you're going to remove uh, your cutter from the pars plana. And a, a little uh, tip that I learned is, you know, uh, you, what you want to do is cut on the way out. You don't want to aspirate on the way out so that any strands of vitreous are cut and you're not tugging on the retina. Uh, it was stated several times that it requires just very little uh, force, really, very little vacuum to cause a retinal tear uh, or retinal detachment. And so uh, you really the whole point is to, to avoid traction on the retina. Now it was interesting. We asked the question again, uh, you know, of the of the audience with our audience response system, what they would do uh, if they had a torn capsule with vitreous prolapse and uh, a segment of the nucleus descending. And 35% uh, wanted to close the eye and refer to a retina colleague, uh, but almost an equal number, 33%, um, stated that they would perform a posterior levitation technique through the pars plana and and lift the nucleus. And this technique, the posterior um, levitation, uh, you know, was initially described by Charlie Kelman. Uh, subsequently, uh, Richard Packard and David Chang uh, published a description of using uh, viscoelastic to perform a posterior levitation. Uh, but the point is that whatever you do, uh, you don't want to pull on the vitreous. Uh, and it's very easy to pull on the vitreous, and it doesn't require a whole lot of pulling to tear the retina. So um, unless you can be sure that you're not engaging vitreous uh, in whatever instrument you're using to levitate the material of nucleus, it's probably a good idea to use a vitrector uh, to go through the pars plana and to be certain that you're cutting adequately so that you don't uh, actually create any suction, which is then pulling on the retina and may cause a tear. One of the things that is a technique that, I'll, that, that I think all surgeons can benefit from is the use of triamcinolone suspension, Kenalog, to stain the vitreous in a technique that Scott Burke published now, you know, many years ago, really, but uh, it's just fabulous for being able to actually see the vitreous. And I really uh, think that, you know, this is a great technique for surgeons to use if they've got a broken capsule or a zonular dialysis, and you're just not sure uh, where the vitreous is or if you've got vitreous in the anterior chamber, you can see it. It's stained with Kenalog. There was some discussion on the panel during this meeting, which is just uh, so important for surgeons to understand. In the original publication, uh, they used a complicated filter system to to clean the catalog, to remove uh, you know, the preservatives that are in there. But it turns out that everyone on the panel agreed you don't need to do that. You can simply dilute uh, catalog 40 milligrams per cc uh, right out of the bottle, dilute it 9 to 1 in a TB syringe. Uh, you have to kind of shake it up a little bit because it is a suspension. Uh, but you can use that so it's quick, it's easy. Uh, if you leave a little bit of the triamcinolone in the eye, it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, it's, it, it may potentially uh, cause an increased pressure briefly, but that's unusual for the small amount that's left, little flakes on the iris. The important thing is that you can see strands of vitreous 
uh, directly, and you really cannot see them any other way. And, and I know we all believe we can see them, but I've been fooled. I, I have absolutely been fooled, even using a Zeiss Lumera microscope, you know, with great dual stereo coaxial illumination, or using a, a xenon split beam illumination system. Uh, you just cannot see vitreous. It has the exact same refractive index as aqueous. And uh, by staining it with Kenalog, uh, it's just a great technique, and that's something that, that uh, surgeons can get familiar with. And I think that's the kind of thing that you hear about at a meeting like this, and you can, you can directly talk to uh, panel members and find out how they actually do it. Um, that kind of information is just not available anywhere else. So I think that was a really valuable um, uh, part of, of the panel discussion. You know, it's funny that you say that, Mark, because that's exactly what I did. I was introduced to the idea of Kenalog staining for vitreous at the annual meeting. Uh, I, I went up to the uh, speaker after the session. I got some pearls. You know, I took it home. I, I tried it out, and, and I swear by it now. And one of the other things that I learned at, at, the, at the meeting, uh, I don't want to say that I learned how to use capsular tension rings, but I was certainly sold uh, on on their use, on, on their value uh, at the meeting. And I've learned some clever techniques too. I had a case uh, in which I used a, a capsular tension ring. Uh, there was very bad zonule loss. I used hooks to stabilize the capsular baggie, even with the capsular tension ring in, which is something that I had seen first uh, at the annual meeting, which worked out very nicely for the case. And I know capsular tension rings is a topic that comes up frequently uh, during these sessions. Can I get you to talk about capsular tension rings and about what sort of cases come up? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the capsular tension ring, you know, it's just been a, a fabulous uh, advantage. And, and especially, you know, all those years that it was sort of um, contraband and investigational, uh, you know, and we saw people uh, outside the U.S. using them and all the things they could do, and we were sort of suffering in silence, you know, waiting for their availability. Uh, now, you know, they're widely available. The use has not uh, been as robust as, as I perhaps thought it was going to be. I think they're used sparingly, and I think uh, part of the reason actually is the expense because they are not, although you can code a 66982 complex cataract code, uh, you know, it still doesn't quite cover the cost uh, for most people of using a CTR. I always think about it this way, that, you know, the cost of a broken capsule and an anterior vitrectomy and management of cystoid macular edema, uh, you know, over the ensuing weeks is, is much higher. It's sometimes uh, so easy to think about cost in terms of, you know, the dollars you spent on something rather than to think about cost in terms of the dollars that you avoided spending on something. It's that kind of intangible stuff that actually ends up costing a lot. And so I don't hesitate if I see signs of capsule wrinkling, uh, you know, or a patient has a significant risk factor like pseudoexfoliation or zonular dialysis from trauma, you know, I just don't hesitate to use a CTR because I'm always thinking if I can avoid breaking the capsule here, if I can avoid further damage to the zonular apparatus, I'm going to be so much better off in the long run. This is going to be a happy patient instead of a disappointed patient. That's priceless. So a lot of the questions about 
uh, capsular tension rings now have more to do with, you know, when they should be placed in the eye uh, and also, you know, whether you should use one of these adaptations with a uh, suture fixation like the Sioni ring or this fabulous new uh, ring that was demonstrated during this session, which is a, a Malugan uh, ring. Uh, it has actually a eyelet for a suture at the end rather than sort of in the middle, so it can be inserted with an injector. That's always been one of the disadvantages with the Sioni modification is you pretty much have to put it in with forceps. Uh, you have to bend it to get it into the bag, and that's often the most difficult part of that procedure is sort of contorting the ring to get it into the capsule without an injector. Uh, but this uh, is a brilliant and simple uh, variation that Boris Melugin came up with by putting the eyelet at the end of the ring where there was an eyelet anyway, but he's kind of got a little twist in the end of the ring, so it comes up, loops up over the uh, edge of the capsular axis, and you can suture it from there. So really very cool, and there was actually uh, a case in which he used two of these rings, so you could put a suture on either side and really um, center the capsule. So the capsular tension ring has led to a lot of innovation. Uh, and there's different variations. One of the questions that we asked during this session was regarding pseudoexfoliation and the timing of placement for the ring. Um, and, you know, one of the sort of debates that we've had and is so useful, I think, uh, which, which you can really only get uh, if you're there in person, is to talk about, you know, is it an advantage to put the ring in at the beginning because it helps stabilize the bag? Uh, however, it makes cortex uh, more adherent because the ring is usually inside the cortex, and so you've got a little bit more work to do your IA to remove the cortex. Also, um, uh, Nick Mamalis and Liliana Warner have shown these fabulous uh, Miyake apple views where you can see that you know, putting in a ring uh, actually is a little bit traumatic uh, to the zonules itself, and so you can actually do some damage when you're placing the CTR, and you may not want to do that at the beginning of the case. So we asked the question, you know, when do you put in a CTR in pseudoexfoliation? Um, and 52% uh, said that they put it in before FACO in most cases. Um, it's interesting. I, I personally, uh, you know, put it in if I see signs of zonular weakness like capsule wrinkling or, or literally phacodenesis, uh, you know, at the beginning of the case. I know I want that ring in there to stabilize the capsule. As you mentioned, you know, using a fixation hook, uh, sort of like a modified iris hook that's been made to stabilize the capsule or this new uh, little anchor device to hold the capsule in place can also be useful if there's a lot of zonular weakness. Um, interestingly, 28% of the audience during this session uh, said they do not use a capsular tension ring uh, in cases of pseudoexfoliation, uh, and that, that really surprises me. You know, we have seen uh, increasing numbers of late dislocations of the bag and IOL complex in pseudoexfoliation. You know, I've managed several of these um, this year. And it's so much easier to suture these things back in if there's a capsular tension ring because you can literally place the suture at, at whatever clock hour is most convenient. Uh, if you don't have a CTR in the bag, then you have to be careful to put the suture where the haptics are so that you're securing the haptics, uh, you know, either usually to the, to the sclera under a scleral flap or 
possibly a, an iris fixation, but usually to the sclera. Uh, with a capsular tension ring in the bag, that becomes much easier. So I think that alone is a good reason to put in a CTR. Uh, that plus, in cases where you do have frank uh, zonular weakness with pseudoexfoliation, it's a tremendous advantage in providing a better outcome. So I was, I was kind of surprised that you know, 28% uh, do not use one at all. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that, that is helpful you know, for people to see uh, at this meeting that, uh, yeah, they may not be alone, but uh, they're going to probably get some criticism. And uh, we all know that the way we learn is literally by looking closely at our errors, by examining our uh, mistakes, our places where we went wrong. Uh, you know, we don't learn anything by looking at our successes, right? Because we already knew how to do that. The only way that human beings learn is to make mistakes and then examine how they made those mistakes and how they could have done better. And that is the kind of sort of egoless examination of ourselves that will really permit us to do better. And I think, uh, you know, the, the panelists don't stint their criticism. You know, we, we clearly stated, you know, you guys, you 28% out there, you need to get on board with this because everybody else here this is a better way of doing things. Mark, last year's meeting dealt with employing small wounds with the idea in mind of limiting the risk of choroidal hemorrhage, suprachoroidal hemorrhage. Can I get you to flesh that out for me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this was actually the, the case that, that won our, our golden apple. And, you know, the, the golden apple is given to the, the presenter uh, who, uh, from whom we learned the most the person who taught us the most. So it's like an apple for the teacher. I mean, that's the, that's the symbolism behind the award. And the, and the winner uh, this past year was Susan Jacobs, uh, who presented a case, uh, actually two cases, of suprachoroidal hemorrhage, one which went very badly and, and one which went okay. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because this is, this is a rare and devastating complication. It's clearly associated with large incisions. Uh, you know, it was more common in the, in the old days of intracapsular surgery. And now with, with a small incision cataract surgery or micro incision cataract surgery, it's, it's really hard to imagine the kind of hypotony developing which allows uh, a choroidal hemorrhage. And, and so we were curious, you know, when we, set, when we put this session together, you know, how many suprachoroidal hemorrhages uh, have surgeons actually experienced for themselves? This is a rare complication, we think. And uh, it turned out that 38% had never experienced a suprachoroidal hemorrhage, 31% uh, just one. So I, I'm in that group. I've had one. Uh, you know, and it's a case I'll never forget, uh, a traumatic uh, uh, dislocation of an IOL. I was trying to do an IOL exchange, and when I took the primary lens out, a lot of vitreous came with it, and then everything else. It's devastating, it's unexpected, and it can occur, uh, for example, in the conversion from phaco to extracap if you have a broken capsule and you're trying to get large pieces of nucleus out of the eye. It's one of the reasons why it may be safer to go through the pars plana with a vitrector to remove uh, pieces of nucleus rather than open up the eye for an extra cap type removal of, of large pieces of nucleus. These two cases were, were really instructive uh, because one involved a corneal transplant, uh, and that, of course, you know, is a situation where you've got a, a, an open sky and, and literally anything can happen. And watching this sort of pulsating uh, choroid uh, was, was incredibly intimidating as, as we're thinking, you know, what do you do? And, and uh, you know, we probably all remember 
from from our training that someone said, well, you literally put your finger on the eye, and that's what this person did. I mean, here it was. How often have you ever seen this? You know, the button is off, the eye is open, uh, and you and you can begin to see, uh, you know, sort of this pulsating blob in the posterior of uh, vitreous cavity, and you realize what's going on, and then you see this finger come across the screen and just sit right down on there until there was time to get the graft in place. Uh, that's exactly what I remember, you know, my department chair saying you should do when I was a resident, and here it was. It's the first time I've ever seen it. What was also extremely interesting, and, and what I actually learned during this session uh, from some people who had seen more than one uh, suprachoidal expulsive hemorrhage, uh, is that they kind of occur in two phases. Uh, there's this initial phase where the choroid collapses and you begin to see this kind of pulsating mass in the posterior uh, chamber. And then there's this huge rush of blood as really the contents of the eye are expelled and that sort of devastating feeling uh, comes over you. And if you can catch it during that first phase before the expulsion, you can do all right. But once everything is coming out, there's just no, no hope. And the other case uh, basically you know, went on to that kind of disaster in which uh, retina and everything else came out of the eye. What was interesting was that it was attributed to the p incorrect placement of an infusion cannula uh, for a vitrectomy. And, and essentially, this, this infusion cannula was in the suprachoidal space. It was not in the vitreous cavity. And it, again, reminded me about the, the sort of skills and, and technical aspects of doing a vitrectomy because, you know, if you place an infusion cannula through the pars plana, you have to be sure it's in the vitreous cavity. It should not be under the retina. And in fact, this one was in the suprachoidal space, and that contributed to the expulsion. So that was fascinating, and and made me realize, and you know, that there's we should, as anterior segment surgeons, we should have a lot of respect for the skills that our posterior segment surgeon colleagues have have learned and perfected. Uh, but also the fact that you know there may be a moment uh, when you sense an expulsive about to occur where you can actually save the day, and that occurred in this other case that we showed, and, and kind of putting the finger on the eye to, to plug the dam, uh, you know, actually succeeded. So it was one of these cases of sort of folklore come to life, the kind of thing you've only heard about or, or maybe read about, and here it was in a video, and we're all watching it. So fabulous, uh, you know, educational moment, and uh, hopefully something that remains a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me. Mark Packer, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you. Mark Packer is in practice with Drs. Fine and Hoffman in Eugene, Oregon. He's the chairperson of the ASCRS Cataract Clinical Committee. Registration for the ASCRS ASOA annual meeting opens on August 25th, and the call for submissions runs from August 5th through September 22nd. You'll find additional meeting information on the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. Housing is open now. I got the hotel that I wanted, but the good ones fill up quickly, so try to book your room soon. Ask questions of Dr. Packer or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery.
be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.